the theological topics, those specific points about which there's going to be disagreement about who is the man who is bound to, uh, what is going on there in Revelation 20. Um, there's some very specific questions they'll be asking. We're going to take two weeks on part four. So that 13, 14, 15, and 16, we'll split those up into two weeks, so two chapters apiece. And then we'll have that last week, which is the last week in October, um, we're going to do one week on objections. Uh, so that does mean that we're going to fit uh, three chapters uh, into one. Um, so there we, that's kind of going forward. These two weeks on what we might call biblical theology, two weeks after that on what we might call systematic theology, getting into a system, and then that last week on the objections. Uh, so if you're following along in the book, that is uh, the pace that we're setting. That's where we're going forward. So today, what we'll be speaking to is creation, anticipation, and realization. Creation, anticipation, and realization. These are the three chapters, not 8, 9, and 10. Now, what do we mean by these three things? These are three themes that we can see being played out in the Old Testament because we're asking the question, what, what is the entire Bible saying about eschatology? Um, and and uh, Gentry gives a few quotes uh, here that really kind of uh, key us into what is kind of the concern of so many that have a more pessimistic view of the end times, a more pessimistic view of eschatology. Uh, and they say, well, you can look at the Old Testament and there seems to be talk of this kingdom and there seems to be talk of a Messiah and a, a king coming in victory. But the New Testament, man, you look at the New Testament and they're persecuted all the time and they talk about suffering all the time. So how can you really look at the New Testament and have such an optimistic eschatology? Well, I would say, well, it's because we take the whole thing together. And if you, if you isolate the New Testament from the Old Testament, then yes, you may be tempted to make such a mistake um, in your eschatology. But once we really dive into the meat of the New Testament next week, I'd argue that also that's a misreading of, of the New Testament. But you can't just read the New Testament out of context, right? It has to be within what's going on in the old. So if the old is anticipating something hopeful, if the old is anticipating something optimistic, then it would only make sense that the New Testament is going to then fulfill that optimism in some form or fashion. It's not going to break from those themes that we see in the Old Testament. So let's, let's talk about what we see even from, and we've already spoken to some of these themes, even from the beginning is their optimism. Even from the very, very beginning in Genesis and the creation account is there some kind of hopefulness, some kind of optimistic outlook in the way that Adam and Eve are looking toward the end. Well, there is, what do we know? And we've already spoken to this. What is Adam's telos, to use a Greek word or to use the English word? What is Adam's purpose? Why did God make man? That is not a rhetorical question. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think he is trying to make us hopeful mm -hmm. instead of, um, you know, everybody seems to say that Revelation is this dark thing and our world is going to get destroyed and all this. And, uh, but we have the hope. 
Mm-hmm. We do have that hope that we're looking looking forward to. That's right. But what is so like? But going even back to Genesis itself, like what is when God makes man? What is that purpose that He gives? Simon. What? It does say he was lonely. Mm-hmm. So there is some kind of social aspect there, right? There is. God makes man to be a social creature. Even the most introverted of introverts um, is not made to be a hermit his entire life, right? Um, as much to the chagrin of many of the early monastics in the early medieval church, right? Um, yet, that is not what God created man to do. God created man to live as a social creature. And we'll talk about that later because that relates to then how he lives in the polis. And we'll talk about that later. That's not worth speaking of today. But, so there is a social aspect. God made man to be social. God made man to be in relationship, right? In relationship with each other and in relationship with him. Those two things are always the case. Now, whether you are in a good relationship with each other or a good relationship with him, that's a different question. But you are always in relationship to your fellow man and to God in some form or fashion. So that's always true as well. But what does God tell Adam to do? Dominion. Dominion. Mm-hmm. What does it mean that, to take dominion? What is that? That is a, a key theme here. What does he tell him to do to take dominion? It seems to be control, take control and do it properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the, in, in the Garden of Eden, that was a fairly simple task, right? was to work, work the garden, right? Make it, plant the plants, grow them, uh, maintain them, right? And then go, uh, we presume, go out from the garden and do the same thing elsewhere as he creates society, as he creates, uh, as he has children and they do the same thing and, and, and things flock and flourish from there, right? Um, and then, of course, that also implies uh, something he cannot do without his wife, what is the command to to eat? To multiply. Mm -hmm. To be fruitful and to multiply. So there are these two things that we see really these two key commands that God gives to man. Um, And then he says to do this, and this is the way by which he will take dominion. He will go forth from Eden, right? And he will take dominion of the earth, right? Eden is just the starting place. Sometimes we think, oh, once once, uh, salvation happens, once we're redeemed, once we're restored, we'll just go back to the garden well, the garden was the starting place, but the earth was in view, right? We were to go out um, and take uh, dominion of the entire earth, right? And we see that's actually, there was a, a sin of man to try to resist such a thing, right? Whenever the Tower of Babel comes along, uh, what is it that they try to do? They try to congregate themselves all together and not go out and take dominion of the earth. And God says, no, that's not how this works, and he scatters them, right? He, he confuses their language so that they're scattered across uh, the entire earth, and that's what happened. So, there is this expectation then that man is going to go out from Eden to take dominion of the earth, and this is actually an image, a theme that we will see throughout uh, the Old Testament. There are there are times in which the temple is mentioned, and there is things going out from the temple and there seems to be a parallel to the way in which Eden has man who was supposed to go out and take dominion. And how how does this happen? Well, we see in Isaiah, right? Isaiah sees the temple in a vision and he sees God in the temple and his glory is spilling forth. The, the temple cannot contain the glory of God as it spills forth from the temple. Ezekiel speaks of looking at the temple and seeing waters that come 
out of the temples and continue to spread across the entire earth. And then we even see uh, there are there are talk of, of mountains all over the Old Testament, and we see nations flocking to the mountain and then going out as those nations do not stay on the mountain. They, they continue to exist on the earth. They come to the mountain as some kind of center, some kind of temple. There seems to be Eden seems to be imaged in different ways throughout the Old Testament as being kind of a center, as a starting point, but never as the ending point, never as just where you stay, right? Adam and Eve were never meant to stay there. And so the creation mandate, that mandate to work and to multiply is a going out from, as an expansion is going out. So that seems to be a theme. This is going to be, though, a point of disagreement between us and some of the more pessimistic views. Some will question whether uh, whether really we were ultimately meant just to take dominion or if there's something else. Were we supposed to go up the mountain? That's what some some will claim, right? That Adam was, was meant to take dominion. That was kind of really a secondary thing. That was just a, a step along the way. And the ultimate was for him to ascend a mountain that they believe was in the middle of Eden and then he would make it to heaven and that would have been uh, the end of his journey. Uh, I would argue that doesn't seem to really be substantiated in scripture. We don't really see uh, that really shown forth uh, to us and there seems to be some jumps that have to be taken in order to to make that assertion. Uh, God never commands Adam to do that, but he does command Adam uh, to go forward and take dominion of the earth. Uh, that is is, is certain, right? And there's, there's multiple verses that speak to this. And as we move forward into that chapter on anticipation, we'll see that that theme gets uh, reaffirmed again and again after we go through covenant and covenant. That's why we had to talk about covenants last time, and that's how that plays into how we see the Old Testament, because every covenant seems to kind of reaffirm or uh, restate something that relates to taking dominion, expanding so having children and multiplying, being fruitful, those things are in the covenants as we go forward. But as creation gives this very hopeful account, as it gives Adam and Eve this hopeful uh, moving forward, this mandate by which they're going to take dominion of the earth, do they do that? Yes or no? Do they, do they end up taking dominion of the earth? Yes, and they, they name the animals. They do? Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, they, they, they name the animals. They do go out from Eden, right? And they do have children. All those things are true. But wait, did they sin before they go out from the garden? Yes. Yes, they did sin. So if they sinned, how on earth can they still fulfill this mandate from God? And there are many on uh, both sides of pre-mill and all-mill, who are going to come to us and say, well, now that man has sinned, how could he possibly take dominion? How could he possibly fulfill this mandate before God? But he does, doesn't he? He does continue to do that. We still continue to do that, right? That we see, um, right? God says, be fruitful and multiply and work the earth and take dominion of it. And are people doing that to this day? They are continuing to do that to this day. So even on the face of it, we have to, at the very least, acknowledge, yes, that man is doing exactly what God commanded him to do. Now, many people are doing that 
tainted by sin, doing it to their own glory and their own uh, selfish desires. Yes, they're not doing it as God had originally intended for him to do, right? Because what God had intended Adam to do was to take dominion and give glory unto God, and he'd be what we might call the vice regent, right? He's not the absolute king. He's the king on earth, the king that answers to the king of kings, who then brings glory unto uh, the true king, right? Adam does bend towards sinful desire as he takes the, the fruit and eats and is cast out of the garden. But there is still a sense in which he continues to fulfill this creation mandate. And how is that possible? How can Adam do, how can he fulfill his telos, his purpose, if he is now a sinful, rebellious being against God? This is where the Sunday... Oh, go ahead. He's still made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he's still going to do it. Right. It's still part of who he is. It's what makes him human. He's still able to do this. But even more than that, there does have to be some kind of remedial action that goes on, right? Because if, if, if there was no remedial action, what should have and what would have happened? In that day, you will surely die. He would have died, right? He should have died. But something happened. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 3. And I've talked about this passage many times in different Sunday schools, but it's an important passage as we talk about man's purpose. And now, what is man's purpose after the fall? Let's turn to Genesis 3. And it's going to be in... Can someone read, starting in verse 16, and read all the way to verse 19? To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. With pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall be Thank you. So we see here, Adam and Eve are cursed because of the sin that they commit. But we've talked about two things that are, we might even call definitional to what man is as human. That he multiplies and that he works and takes dominion. That's what it means to be man. That is part of what we might call, to use a fancy term, the ontology of man, right? If all that's true, do we see that, that God gave this command to Adam and Eve and then now that they've sinned they, they cannot do it any longer? No. What? We don't we see that they, they still they still can. Actually that's why when you look at these curses, sometimes we're tempted to read these verses here, right after man has sinned and he's being judged rightly for for what he has done, and this 
the blessing that is hidden within it, right? We see most of us will, will look at that, that verse prior, the verse 15, where there's a curse being called down upon the serpent and there's a promise for Christ to come, right? Which is integral for the rest of the, the verse, right? There, the, Christ is the redeemer. There does need to be some kind of redemption to happen in order for man to still act as he was always meant to act, right? To do what he was meant to do, there needs to be a redeemer. So we see the redeemer promised and then what does God immediately say after he redeems or he promises the redeemer to come? He looks to man or look, first he looks to woman and he says that which you were meant to do, it will be painful for you to do it, but you will still do it. Then he looks at man and says the exact same thing. That which you were meant to do, it will be painful for you to do it, but you can still do it. We see a redeemer and then we see that man can still do what man was intended to do from his creation. So we still see, then, that man still fulfills the creation mandate. So this is very, very critical because there are going to be many people on both the pre-mill and all-mill camp who are going to come and say, wait a second, no, Adam had a creation mandate. He failed at that creation mandate, and only Christ can fulfill the creation mandate. And we say, no, a man can only fulfill the creation mandate because of Christ. That is true. There must be redemption that happens. But that man is still, just as Adam was to fulfill that mandate, and so were his sons. So, too, Christ is the new and better Adam, and his sons will fulfill that creation mandate as well. We have to see this theme coming together in this covenantal unity that just as Adam's progeny was to do it, and he failed. And now when he failed, though now his all sons, those sons of Adam, those who are still in the first Adam, still continue to do the creation mandate, now, though now to a sinful end, the sons of Christ, that is, those who are in the covenant of grace by faith, they are going to fulfill the creation mandate more and more and more as they are sanctified toward a good end, toward the end of God's glory um, and his purposes. And so that's how we'll see this coming about. The creation mandate is not a step along the way. The creation mandate is what makes you human. It is what makes you man or woman. It is what is definitional, it is what is ontological of you. And this is why Christians are so, uh, so quick to harp on things about family and things of that nature, right? Because to be fruitful and multiply. This is part of what it means to be human as we create families and this is how we take dominion of the earth. So this is all here for us in the first few chapters of Genesis. So that's creation. But then we have anticipation. Where is this going? Now that we know that there is a creation mandate that Adam and Eve shouldn't have been able to fulfill it but God through his mercy allowed them to continue and promised the Redeemer who was coming he continues as the covenants move forward and move along to then point and give us a little bit more clarity each time as to who this Redeemer is and when he's going to come. So let's move then to Genesis 9. And this is, we're not going to hit every single covenant. We don't have time to hit every single covenant. Um, but I'm going to look at Noah here. Because there is a difference 
of interpretation. There's going to be a difference of approach in how an amil or a premil may come to this covenant and how, um, how gentry is in, and most post mills are going to come to this covenant. Because what they're going to see is there's something almost to the side, something extra that's put here in the Noahic covenant that doesn't necessarily continue on in the line of covenants. Whereas a post mill is going to see this very continuous nature to the covenants. After Genesis 3, the way that we view covenants is not that there are a whole bunch of covenants that are different from each other, but that there is a covenant that is started and that is the covenant of grace. And every covenant after Genesis 3 is still part of that covenant of grace. Every person who is ever saved is only ever saved by their united to Christ, uniting to Christ in the covenant of grace. And that every covenant that God makes with man after Genesis 3 is still part of that same covenant he made in Genesis 3. It's just revealed that much more. There's that much more clarity. Something is being revealed. And I would say even here, when God makes this covenant with Noah, that we're getting more clarity. So let's read. Um, let's start. Can someone start with uh, Genesis 9? And can you start in verse 1 and go down to verse 7? Genesis 9, 1 through 7. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the flesh, fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. From man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So we see here... Do we see here the, command, the creation mandate... Uh, restated. Yes, right? Be fruitful and multiply. It's the first thing that God says in this covenant. Be fruitful and multiply. So the creation mandate is again given to Noah. We know that Noah is still to do it and his sons are to do it. But there's greater clarity being given here. Most people are going to jump to this text and say this is, going, this is some kind of common grace covenant that's being made with everybody and that this is the uh, the statement by which we get the justification for governments and therefore governments are to be part of Christian and non-Christian peoples and it's all for everybody and that's this is where natural law comes from etc etc I think there's a that's reading a lot into the text what do we see here we see a creation mandate we do see that man is indeed justified in in what we might call capital punishment, right? I would say that this and, and, and others, as we can look throughout the scripture, uh, there is a very good case to be made. Um, I would say there's, a, there's not really a case to be made in the opposite direction uh, for justification of capital punishment, but I don't think that's really what, what, what's really being gotten at here. I actually see that for man will he require a reckoning, a reckoning of life 
What does that sound like? That blood will be required. What does that sound like? This is where sacrifices and a future sacrifice. Exactly. Sacrifices and a future sacrifice. Which would give us the Sunday school answer of Jesus. Yes, this sounds like Jesus. Again, we're pointing even now, even in this passage, I would argue that what's really in view is, is it are we seeing here some kind of uh, common grace covenant uh, with all peoples, whether they're believers or not? Or are we seeing God making a covenant with the people, the particular people that he saved and giving them mandates, things they must do, and then also pointing them to the Redeemer who is going to redeem them because they are expecting wait, Sin requires death. Sin requires blood. There's going to be a sacrifice. Every single covenant, this is what is going on. It's a particular people moving forward. And so we do see, and we see this in reality, in, in just the way that the world works and throughout the scriptures pointed to as well, that there are benefits that unbelievers reap by being with those that are in the covenant, right? We see there are unbelievers in ancient Israel. They gain from the system of laws that God institutes for Israel. They gain, they benefit from the justice there. Uh, we see uh, that many people will be blessed uh, by the covenant, though they're not actually being blessed in the salvific sense. That is true. But that is not, I would argue, what the main point of this text is. There is God blesses the earth because of his love for his people. And there is benefits then also to those who are not his people, but they will eventually, of course, be judged. Though they may not be judged in water, uh, they will be judged in fire, right? So there is still this particular sense to the covenant that's being made, just as there was in Genesis 3, and now we're gonna get more particular here, and then we get even more particular in Abraham. And I'll briefly mention Abraham. We don't have time to really jump into his covenant because there's a lot there. But does God reiterate the creation mandate to Abraham? Yes, he does. Right? He doesn't even he, he doesn't just say it in the way that he says it to Noah, right? To Noah he says, be fruitful and multiply. To Abraham he says, you will be fruitful. He promises it as this is and this is what we, we forget about God, perhaps, is that there, when God commands, it is also a promise, right? God does not command that which he will not strengthen us to do. He says, do this, and he says, and I will be with you, and I will make it happen, right? And so whenever he tells Abraham, he doesn't just say it in the command, he also gives him that promise. And then we do see, of course, he fulfills that promise in the sons of Israel, in the kingdom of Israel, and as we go forward. And so, again, we see more and more clarity. So there is this hope all throughout the Old Testament. Do we see uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, in Moses' Covenant, do we see that there is something being promised there? Yeah, so we see that there is a promise of redemption, that we see that sacrifice is happening all the time, but they know that the sacrifice of bull and, and goats is not going to be enough because they even remember they would have known what Genesis 9 had said. Because for the blood of man, man's blood will I require. So a bull or a goat is not going to be enough for the sin of man. Israel knows this. 
And we go forward into that kingdom. God promises to David a son of his that will sit on the throne. There is constant promises being made. There is something coming forward. And then we get, trying to keep this all in a right time here, but we do get to the Psalms. We go out through all throughout history and we see covenant after covenant after covenant being made. And then we see the songbook of the Old Testament peoples of Israel, the inspired psalm book. These are, these are our songs. This is why we sing psalms in this church, right? Because this, these, are, these are written as songs to be sung. And there is no chance that you could sing anything errant if you're singing a psalm, right? It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. Um, so God gave us um, a perfect set of 150 songs. And what is it that they believe what is it if we're going to ask is there an anticipation of something hopeful is there optimism in the old testament where better to go than what the old testament church was singing well let's look at psalm 2 what is psalm 2 saying? let's let's read the whole the whole psalm it's pretty short could someone read psalm 2 This really does show us something coming, doesn't it? Who is this son? Kiss the son lest he be angry. What is, who is this son? Jesus. Jesus, yeah. This is the son. And we will see throughout the Psalms this is true. We don't have time to get into all the Psalms uh, because really most all of them are all really speaking to this reality. Um, some much more clearer than others. But here we see very clearly there is a son to come. He'll be set up on Zion's hill, he will rule, and the nations will be ruled by him. Not a single nation like Israel, but the nations will be ruled by him. This is what the Old Testament church is singing. And other psalms bear this out too. We, we talked about Psalm 72 before. We talked about Psalm 110. 
even Psalm 22, all of these psalms sing of the similar, similar reality of a king to come, a king who is a son, that is, the son of God. And so the Old Testament is continually anticipating, is anticipating this, this hopeful king who is to come. But if the history of the covenants tell us this, if the songbook of the Old Testament tells us this, what about those who we most commonly associate with predicting the future, the prophets? Well, let's turn to Isaiah, and we will see this to be true as well. Can we turn to Isaiah 2? And can someone read the first four verses of Isaiah 2? The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of David, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Thank you. So we see here, <coughs> mention, this really is almost a parallel verse to Psalm 2 that we just read. There's mention of what? Of a king to come, set up on Zion, right? And it even mentions something that the New Testament, we'll talk about this a lot next week, talks about a lot, which is those latter days. Does the New Testament, and this is where the pre-mill is going to run into some trouble, right? Those latter days is talking about a kingdom, clearly a kingdom, a clean kingdom set up from Zion, a king <laughs> reigning on Zion, nations flocking to that mountain, and the law going forth from that mountain as rule over all the nations center in this one place. It does sound a lot like Eden, right? We are seeing that Edenic, to use a word, that Edenic parallel there. As things go, as man was supposed to go out from Eden, so too we see the law and the word of God going out from the mountain. But this is in the latter days. Do the apostles speak of the latter days as being something that is thousands of years in the future after Christ comes back again? No. He warns Timothy that in the latter days, when you're still around, right? <laughs> You're going to have to watch out for these kinds of people making their way into the church, etc. We see the word, these, this phrase that the apostles use again and again, those latter days, these last days, depending on how you translate that Greek, is used to describe the age when the church is around. So if the latter days are the age when the church is around, and Isaiah is saying that in those latter days, Christ will be set up on his mountain and will be reigning, well, then that sounds a lot like Christ is reigning now. So that brings us, brings all this together as we're seeing these themes throughout the Old Testament. I'll briefly, this then of course leads us to, and I apologize for not being able to get into the other passages in Isaiah. There's quite a bit there that we could unpack as we go forward and see. Isaiah is probably one of the more 
uh, the easier to, to see as Christ is being proclaimed and Christ is being predicted uh, in Isaiah. Not that the other prophets don't predict him as well, but Isaiah is very, very clear, especially as we get verses that talk about a suffering servant, one who is to be the son of a virgin, um, one who is to bear the sins of his people. Um, it just becomes so, so very clear in Isaiah that Christ is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, there are uh, Isaiah is so abundantly clear that there are, are Jews to this day who, who skip entire passages and entire chapters uh, in their yearly reading of the Old Testament because uh, that passage there in Isaiah 61, I believe, is so, so clear. And many, many a Jew has lost his faith um, and converted to the true faith, to the true religion, praise God, because they cannot interpret that passage without it pointing directly to the Son of the Most High God. But then there is realization. This is what we see in the Gospels. There is a realization. There is a creation. There is a purpose given to man. Man fails to do it, but then he is allowed to continue doing it by the redemption of one to come, which means the one to come must indeed come. And so he does. And this is when all that the Psalms, the prophets, and the histories are anticipating, all of that which is anticipated is realized. But the kingdom comes in a way that the Pharisees, that is the leading scholars, the leading religious people of the day, did not anticipate. The kingdom came not with pomp and circumstance, and Christ even says this, it comes while he is doing his ministry because he, doesn't, he does not say, at this point in time the kingdom will come. How does he speak over and over and over again? The kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is at hand. He even tells them when they should expect it to come, even though it's actually already come, right? He says, when you see demons being cast out, you will know the kingdom of God is upon you. He says as he's casting out demons, right? That the kingdom is here. And so we see it was realized, but not in a way that the Pharisees expected. And the Pharisees expected it to be a political kingdom. And now this is where we have to be careful, right? The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, and this is something that Gentry does emphasize and show. Because the pre the pre-mill wants to say, no, it is a political kingdom. And we don't see the political kingdom right now, therefore it's not here yet, right? So it's going to come afterwards. He actually commends the pre-mill for making a, a, an important point that there is a material manifestation to that kingdom. There is something material to it, right? Because the odd mill would like to say, well, we know that the kingdom's here, but we don't see any material evidence for it, so it's spiritual. It's all entirely spiritual. Or some odd mills will say that. And so there's, he says, no, you've got you to take... They're, they're, they're hitting something and they're missing something. We've got to take what they're hitting and put them together, right? The pre-mill says there is a material reality to it that is true. But then they say, but it's not here yet. And the all-mill says, well, there, it is a spiritual kingdom, uh, entirely spiritual, but it is here. So we say, yeah, no, it is here now, but there is a material aspect to it. Those two things do go together. And so the post-mill does justice to both of these truths that both are hitting at and recognizing in the scripture and the text. But what does it mean, though, when we say the kingdom is spiritual? Because it is indeed spiritual. It means exactly what Christ said it means to Pilate. 
because Pilate asks the question, right? Pilate says, are you a king? And Christ says, yes. He doesn't say no, he says yes, as you have said, right? And he says, but if it had been a kingdom like you expected, then my followers would have taken up arms and overthrown you. But did they do that? No. If this kingdom of God is a political kingdom in the ways that all the other kingdoms are political, then yes, there would be a, there would be a nation called the church existing within New Braunfels right now, and we would all unite together and we would start making an army, we would elect our president, and we would go overthrow the city council. But are we doing that? <laughs> no, but there is a material aspect to it as well. Christ's kingdom was not contra Rome as a political entity, but it was contra Rome as far as the philosophical and religious foundation that Rome was built upon. Did Rome fall to Christianity? Yes, it did. It did, because Rome is built upon what? It's built upon polytheism and chaos and philosophies that come out of the Greco-Roman world that have no real foundation. And that, though, they had stood on that philosophy and on those polytheistic notions for a thousand years, when Christianity shows up on the scene, it doesn't take an army and march into the city of Rome. It begins to bombard that philosophy because it is merely a philosophy of man built on sand. And it crumbles. Rome did not fall because Christianity was another kingdom with an army ready to take it over. Rome fell because Christianity came from within. And it took over Rome to such a point that the emperor of Rome repented of his sin and became Christian and legalized it throughout the empire. And then we have, of course, that famous era in which there were councils in which Christians were allowed to come and liberate freely and openly in the palace of the emperor. And then we see they are able to send out missionary journeys into the barbarian, uh, Germa uh, barbarian Germania and Britannia and all over the world. And then we see, of course, that it's not just that they are now peaceful, but there is material manifestation going on as well in that because the laws, the legal system of Rome is built upon sand, when the sand is taken away and that legal system crumbles, what's put in its place? A legal system that is based upon a philosophy, upon a religion that is solid, that is rock, that rock that Christ described, that is himself, logos, the word. And so what do we see? We see the laws of Rome change overnight. We see the gladiator games done away with. We see laws against homosexuality being uh, put forward as, uh, especially in Greece, uh, there was rampant uh, what we call pederasty, uh, homosexuality between an older man and a young boy. Um, and that is completely done away with. We see uh, laws against abortion and against what we call abandonment, right, which is uh, post-birth abortion as they would just let children be set aside on the road to, to die and be killed uh, by the wolves. And yet that's now outlawed. And we see again and again and again, especially to move into the Middle Ages. Again, I'll, I'll, I, I always like to harp on this and I'll, I'll harp on it real quick and then we'll end that the Middle Ages is not the story of the dark times. 
It is the story of the kingdoms that come out of that Christian Roman Empire starting to realize what does it mean to be a Christian kingdom. It's not that the church is a single nation, a single political entity. That's what Christ was saying. But he wasn't saying, and therefore, Alfred the Great, make sure you don't base your laws on the scripture. (laughs) That's not ever what Christ said. There is a material manifestation to it, but it is spiritual because all nations are what? Are flocking to Mount Zion as the word and the law goes forth from the sun set upon that holy hill. And that's what we're seeing today as the waters go forth from the temple and eventually engulf the entire earth. So yes, Christianity brought Rome to its knees, just not in the way uh, that we might think of or that modern historians would like to admit. That gives us 10 minutes for questions. <laughs> We've talked about this before, but can you uh, counteract the argument of God being reactive in the covenants? In other words, that something happened and God says, well, I've got to react to it for each dispensation, right? As opposed to providentially every covenant. I would, my, the first place I would. Right. The, so the covenants we see uh, being unfolded. And I say that the first place that, that I would go is that um, even within like the covenant of Abraham, we see God even just flat out saying exactly what's going to happen. Right. Uh, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to. And this is actually something that I kind of glossed over that is really important that the gentry does talk about that land being a down payment. And, and then God also talking about them, the sons of Abraham being heirs of the world. And then Romans 4 regurgitates that and says, yes, and we are the sons of Abraham, and we are taking over the world. And so there's that connection there. God says to Abraham, you're going to take this land, but you're going to go now, and then you're going to live in exile, and you're going to be gone for 400 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. Right. So we see that in the covenants, there's never a time when God is not anticipating what's going to happen. Um, he is anticipating what's going to happen because he's the one making it all unfold to begin with. Um, that to, to, to say that God reacts goes against the way in which we believe about God as the scriptures present him. If he is immutable, he can't change. If he is omniscient, he knows all. These things the Bible tells us very, very clearly. If he is omnipotent, that that means he is all-powerful to the point that nothing can thwart that which he wants to do ever. Then... He cannot react. Reacting is not in his nature. Um, and then I think just the way in which we see history play out in the Old Testament bears that out quite quite nicely. Can you clarify your statement on the Noahic Covenant of who it's for? The Noahic Covenant is for God's redeemed, for his elect. That is saying that I have pulled out Noah and his people or Noah and his sons and their wives. I have redeemed them. I have put them in a boat. I have saved them from the floods. And now he's telling them, those whom he has saved, his redeemed, go and be fruitful and multiply. He is not saying this as some kind of common grace. This is much to the chagrin of many 
many people in the reform camp who would disagree with me on this point, is not saying that this is some kind of common grace, though there is common grace with it. I would say that there is benefit that the unbeliever takes from this covenant in the same way that there are, there are many benefits that the unbeliever benefits from the church going forward, right? There are unbelievers that benefit from Abraham's covenant. God even says this, right? The nations will be blessed by you. And we see that happening with pagan kings. And then we see pagans benefiting from David's kingdom. And we see that now pagans benefit from the church, right? We look at the society today, and do we not see laws in our, on our books that pagans benefit from that are based upon a Christian worldview and Christians who designed them? Yes, of course we do. Unbelievers benefit from the covenant of grace, but they are not saved by it. They are covenant breakers. There are only two categories of people, right? Those who keep the covenant and will be saved, and those who break it, who still live in God's world, which is still being blessed by the covenant of grace, but they're not part of that covenant. So. You talked about the kingdom, right? It is spiritual. Mm -hmm. We also want to say that because we friends in the R2K crowd who take that a little extreme. Could you, could you briefly explain um, the two kingdoms position? And it, are, are there things that you, you hear people who are two kingdoms and they're not radical? Do mm -hmm. they get, is there something to that? Or is it one spiritual kingdom that has physical influences? Or is there some sense to understanding them in, in separate so I think there's there's two ways the, the R2K so R2K meaning radical two kingdoms um, there's there's a confusing way in which we it's really hard to think through this and a lot of, there's there's different positions within that camp as well um, but to try to so we know that there are there are two kingdoms when no one's denying that there are two kingdoms there are some people that will say oh, I'm a one kingdom man what they typically mean is I believe in the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. So there's two, there's two kingdoms, right? So the, the, I don't think anyone really can deny that there is a kingdom of light that is going forward against, over and against the kingdom of, of darkness, right? That is, that is just biblical, right? That seems to be the way in which uh, the Christ speaks of the kingdom, right? The kingdom is like a mustard seed, is going out, it is spreading forward, and then we see that the domain on darkness is being pushed backwards. Um, but that's not what R2K means by two kingdoms, right? Um, so to, that, that is what we might call the historical or traditional view of there being two kingdoms. Um, R2K goes to say, well, what we mean by two kingdoms is that one is the spiritual and one is the common or the physical or the secular um, kingdom. And so what you do at church, what you do for the gospel, what you do in your spiritual life, that is you working as a citizen of the spiritual kingdom, of Christ's of Christ kingdom. And then there is the kingdom at large that are basically the kingdoms. This just the secular kingdoms, the kingdom of the United States, right, that exists and you're a citizen of that and, and you have to do all of these what they call common grace things. Go to work, uh, have a family, uh, send them to school, uh, or homeschool them, or, or whatever it may be, right? Those are all common grace things that you do now as a citizen of the secular kingdom. And then they say, and because of this separation, well, what the people, what everyone does things in the secular kingdom, though the, the pagans don't, don't operate in that spiritual kingdom, 
they operate in the secular kingdom. And so you can't really ever say that the that a Christian, that a lot of times they'll try to say, right, a Christian's not going to do science any better than a pagan. A, a, a Christian's not going to do education any better or et cetera. Whatever, fill in the blank, because it's in that secular realm, it's something that everyone does and everyone knows what to, how to do it. That's the R2K distinction. That's what they mean by two kingdoms. Um, so we have to be careful there. I would say, well, a lot, a lot of that just is, is, is on some, some shaky ground, right? Christianity does, in fact, as a good Vantillian, I'm going to say Christianity justifies every single bit of truth that ever exists. So yes, can a scientist get something right if he's not a Christian? Of course. But can he justify it? Never. And I would say that is true for every field. And so though there are non-Christians that operate in the secular realm and do things rightly, and there are Christians that do it not as good as them, that does not then prove that there is somehow this other kingdom off to the side in which Christianity has no bearing or is somehow removed from because Christianity justifies everything. And what we are seeing is that they're still playing in God's world. That's how I always like to put it. Whenever the, the, the pilot flies the plane and he operates the instruments correctly and the plane takes off, is it because he's a Christian that he can do that? No. But he's still playing in God's world. God still wrote the script. God still has the laws of physics and he's just benefiting. He's borrowing from our worldview to assert that there is a logical order to the world and in his rebellion, suppressing the parts of the truth that make it that are that are necessary to make that happen, right? That's how how I would say there are really there is God's world. God is sovereign over all, and in that sense, there are rebels in His world that suppress the truth they need in order to do the things that they do. But Christ's kingdom is slowly pushing the rebels out, right? To, to put it in a way that C.S. Lewis puts it, the king is here. We're proclaiming the fact that there is a king. We're not saying uh, to the king, oh, let me help you push the borders forward. No, the, the nations are already under his control. We're telling the rebels, guys, if, if you don't watch out, <laughs> the king is going to come in his wrath because you're rebelling against him. Right? It's still God's world. And so that's, that's I try to frame it more in that way. I, I see why they try to why they want to have that distinction there, um, because they want to justify how can a non-Christian be so good at fill in the blank, right? Um, and I would say, well, it's because he's borrowing from our worldview. He's borrowing from the Christian worldview. Yes, sir? Well, you pointed out how um, the Noahic covenant, when God you know, was speaking to Noah and said, you know, life, you know, you shall have uh, the food, you know, the animals, well, not with the life, not with the blood, and that, yeah, there is well, and not necessarily if pointing to sacrifice, right? Sacrifice already existed, right, with Adam and Eve. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, that does bring us to time. So, uh, did you have a question? Yeah, I did. Yeah, sorry. This whole. Um, Operation of the kingdom of darkness in God's world mm -hmm. is a huge distraction. Mm -hmm. And 
it's hugely troubling and it's easy to get caught up into, into it. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking that politics can fix things. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's also um, hard to see the optimism. Sure. Sure. And um, you know, if you base things on feelings and perceptions, you can really get in trouble. Oh, for sure. And I just wanted to talk about that. Sure. And I'll uh, briefly mention just because we we're out of time, but I'll yeah, I think that that's where we have to really key into what the writer of Hebrews says. Um, who says we walk by, by faith, not by sight. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is that uh, not that we walk in, in blind, uh, blindness, but that there are times when the world looks a certain way and we're tempted to try to base our theology on that. Right? We're, we're tempted to say, well, okay, well, things are going uh, to hell in a handbasket, to use a phrase, and therefore that must mean that my beliefs of optimism are misplaced. Right? Um, and yet, there are, there are many ways to counteract that. A, we look to the scriptures, and, and I'm trying to show that in the scriptures you show something else, right? But then also, we, you can also zoom out, right, and say, well, there have been times when things were going down, when there have all been times where things are going up. And if I look at our situation now, it is actually quite marginally better than it was during the Roman Empire or during fill-in-the-blank of what time period you'd like to go back to. Right? There are many aspects of this life that are better now, material and spiritually. Um, and so I'd say we have to, but even then, right, if you're a, if you're a, uh, a Chinaman right, who's a Christian and your government wants to kill you, um, and as, as many have lost their life there, um, then there is still the aspect of, well, I'm walking by faith, not by sight. I'm trusting what God has said is true. And though in my particular time, in my particular circumstance, things are terribly, terribly bleak, um, what does the scripture say is true? What does God say is true? Um, and that's really, that is one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian walk, right? We, we have to all the time um, believe that God is saving us, even though we ourselves tell ourselves that we shouldn't be saved because we sin all the time, right? There is, um, even in our own individual walks, there's a... Um, as an aspect to uh, God has said, I am saved, I am his, he is, he is mine, and I believe it, even though sometimes I'm, I'm tempted not to, right, uh, because of what I see before my eyes uh, right here, right now. Um, so maybe not the, the, the easiest answer, but it is, it is most certainly one of the harder, harder aspects, I think, of the Christian law. Um, I saw Dean, but then, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a ongoing program. So instead of this nice, steady, predictable, the kingdom does this, but he does it through the antithesis is always there the unbelief and the, the, the kingdom of the, the dark one is always operating, right? And uh, God will allow death, but then after that is resurrection. That's the pattern. So you see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as our institutions and our culture, as far as the death, but there will be a resurrection after. We should never forget that. 
not over. It's a new life, and God rebuilds, and the king advances. Even as Jesus demonstrated in his life. And to use an example from history to show that, right? Extenebris Luke's the one of the rallying cries of the Reformation, out of such darkness and hope and the uh, controlling aspects of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages came. It's one of the most glorious times of some of those brave men and the most, uh, yeah, the most brave Christian men we've ever seen. Um, and without the Reformation, we'd not be here. So, mm-hmm. do you have a follow-up? Yeah. Then, as now, they they want to portray the church as being this, but mm-hmm. in reality it's this. You know what I'm saying? Like, you mean? Meaning that this whole universalism of oh, I I mean the church being huge when really it's small. Not all of them to be a part of Israel are Israel. Right, yeah, that's true, for sure. And that's where we have to uh, keep the faith, right? And we do know that the church is, is much larger than it was 2,000 years ago. Oh, yeah. Right, and that's that's true. It is true, though, that many calling themselves Christian are not Christian, right? Yeah. And, of course, there are those that believe that, that you can be Christian and not believe in the resurrection or, or crazy things like that, right? Um, and that's not at all what we're saying. We are saying the church is growing, though. It's just maybe sometimes harder for us to see um, that happening. And so what we do, we even do look to places like China and places where it's oppressed and the church is still growing. So, all right. Well, let us pray as we uh, depart. Um, let's have who will be the lucky victim. How about Justin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, all the stuff that uh, Caleb has labored uh, to teach us. Thank you that uh, it's fairly easy to understand these things as he uh, does his best to make them clear. Lord, uh, we ask that you would first uh, make your kingdom strong in our hearts. And as we go out into the world, Lord, help us to be the salt and the aroma to those who are dying, uh, that they may see your kingdom in us and uh, thirst for that and for true life in you. Uh, Help us now as we leave our Sunday school class. We ask that you bless the preaching of Pastor Miller. Help him uh, rightly divide your word. Help our, uh, cause our hearts and our minds to be open and ready to receive it, that we would be built up in you, our Lord and our Savior. We ask these things in Christ our King's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.